We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast where we explore pop culture from a Jewish perspective and look at Judaism through the lens of pop culture. I am Rabbi Michael Knopf, and I'm joined as always with my friend and colleague, Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And uh, today we are going to talk about something special, something a little bit off the beaten path from our usual usual pop culture discussion. We're going to be talking about uh, Rabbi Alitsky's uh, recent trip to the U.S.-Mexico border with TRUA, uh, an organization of uh, rabbis for human rights, uh, and HIAS, uh, formerly the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, an organization uh, that works on immigration and refugee uh, issues uh, and uh, provides support for uh, those who are seeking refuge and asylum uh, in the United States, Jewish and not Jewish. Uh, and uh, we're talking about this uh, against the backdrop of uh, something really momentous in, uh, in, in pop culture, uh, which is the beginning of the public impeachment uh, process uh, that is going on in that House of Representatives right now in Washington. The first day of public testimony uh, is today. Uh, and uh, while the issues that we're going to be talking about today are not uh, directly connected to impeachment, um, they are uh, in large part a consequence of the Trump administration's policies uh, and uh, actions related to uh, immigration, uh, which, uh, again, are not part of the impeachment proceedings or not part of the case that's being laid out against uh, the president, but from our perspective are uh, part of a moral case uh, that we want uh, to lay out not only against this president, but also um, as a, a question about where we are um, as a culture, as a society uh, in this country uh, and what Jewish tradition has to say about it. Uh, and also uh, what this brings to mind for us uh, in a conversation about Judaism and pop culture. So uh, with that introduction, uh, Jesse, why don't you share with us a little bit about uh, about the trip, about um, uh the organizations that you went with, about uh, what moved you to go, and about what you saw. Right. Thanks, Mike. Um, I think it's important to point out that our broken immigration system uh, is not a partisan issue. Uh, President Obama, who I respect a lot and a big fan of, um, was called the deporter-in-chief, that he deported prior to President Trump. President Obama deported uh, more undocumented immigrants, residents of our country than any previous presidents. Uh, So this is really a bipartisan broken system that we really need to solve. Uh, We went to the U.S.-Mexico border. I went with Hyas, who they say that they used to work to resettle immigrants and refugees because they were Jewish. uh, And now they do this work because we are Jewish, meaning really believe that is the Jewish cause, obligation, responsibility to love the sojourner, to protect the migrant, uh, to welcome the stranger, that uh, this 
law of welcoming the stranger is mentioned more times in the Torah than any other law. And so this command epitomizes what it means to be a Jew, uh, and it epitomizes really what our own Jewish story and history is, those of migrants uh, being Ivrim, being Hebrews, those who cross boundaries and cross borders, who resettle from one place to the other for the safety and security of our own families and our own people. Uh, so we went with Highest and we went with Trua, the rabbinic human rights organization, to bear witness because we truly believe that we can't speak to the immoral actions of this administration and of this Justice Department, of ICE, of the Department of Homeland Security, of Customs and Border Patrol, if we don't see it firsthand. And for 72 hours, we were at the border based in El Paso. Uh, initially, we crossed to the Mexico border uh, in Ciudad Juarez. El Paso and Juarez have a, a deep beautiful history of being a binational city. It's one of the busiest ports of entry in our country. So many of the goods made in Mexico that are sold here cross through that port every day. And there are pedestrian bridges where regularly people would cross back and forth. We heard from people who talked about that. That's where they would go and party on, on you know, when they were in high school and college in El Paso, they would cross the border into Mexico to party there and hang out on the weekends. Um, those with Work visas would have uh, would cross every day, and they would go from Mexico from Juarez to work in El Paso, even though they lived in Mexico. There's this this deep connection between these two cities, uh, and it was really post September 11th that it became increasingly more difficult to cross the border from one country to the next on a regular basis. We began in Juarez, and we began in Mexico, to really see the results of one of this administration's most devastating policies, which went into effect this past summer, the MPP, the Migrant Protection Protocol. The Migrant Protection po Protocol, also known as uh, the Remain in Mexico program, uh, is intending on having people who are asylum seekers remain in Mexico until their case is heard. The problem with that, if you declare asylum and you are on U.S. soil and you declare asylum, U.S. law says you cannot be sent out of this country while your asylum case is pending. And like any country's borders, there are usually a no-man's land of sources. Um, I remember this when I, uh, I was living in Israel. Mike, you and I spent time living in Israel together mm -hmm. uh, while we were in rabbinical school. And we would go to Jordan. And there's about a, a football field's length, 100 yards of a walk that you take when you leave Israel's borders and go to Jordan's borders. And that land in between, really halfway in between is Israel, halfway in between was Jordan, but it was this no man's land and customs and border patrol for each country didn't start until you crossed that no man's land. And that's really what these pedestrian bridges were. These bridges were um, a no man's land of sorts. One side of the bridge was customs for Mexico. One side of the bridge was customs and border patrol for the United States. Uh, but halfway through the bridge, you were on U.S. soil. And one of the first things that President Trump and the Department of Justice instituted was to set up barbed wire and block off 
uh, all the lanes but one lane of this bridge and set up Customs and Border Patrol halfway on the bridge so that when one approached to legally approach a port of entry to legally declare asylum, they were stopped from entering U.S. soil to declare asylum and turned away. The first thing that they were, were told to do, it's this metering system, which uh, our country started in May of 2018. They were essentially given a ticket like they were at a deli counter waiting to order cold cuts and told to wait in line. The problem is our uh, system got so backlogged that right now the average wait is uh, half a year just to have... Uh, just to be given the opportunity to declare asylum by Customs and Border Patrol. They're told to wait in Mexico. These 10 cities are set up on the border. Or in many cases, once they are given the option of declaring asylum, they're sent back into Mexico and they're told to wait in shelters that the Mexican government have set up if they're lucky enough to find a space in these shelters. Or again, in these 10 cities on the border because this is a country that they're not from a country that they do not know or most of these most of these migrants are from where uh most of these migrants are from central america from honduras el salvador um guatemala um where there's real unrest some are coming from uh brazil some are coming from venezuela um and uh they're leaving because their lives are in jeopardy um, we went to Shelter de Leona Vicario, one of the shelters that was set up by the Mexican government. And there were 200, and it was a warehouse, a converted warehouse. There were 250 beds for about 700 plus people who were staying there. And these were the quote unquote lucky ones, right? These were the ones who were able to find space in a shelter. We heard stories from two families. One, uh, a family from Honduras that uh, the mother saw a uh, the drug cartel act and she worked on a military base and when they followed her to that military base she was simply going to work and they thought she was going to uh, tell the military what she saw and so they you know kidnapped her and they kidnapped her 14 year old daughter and put them in ice boxes they were able to escape and they just started walking and for months until they got to northern Mexico uh, because they were kidnapped and the drug cartel was planning on killing them. And when they wandered about in Ciudad Juarez in this border city, they saw people following them. That's the same drug cartel, which is a huge problem in Mexico as well, um, especially in these border towns and attempt to smuggle in uh, drugs into the United States through these border towns they feared for their safety there as well and feel like they can't even leave the shelter. We heard from another woman in Honduras who was a professional soccer player, and we heard her story about how she fouled a team member from the opposing team whose brother is a gang member. And so they put a mark on her daughter's neck, which was a sign that a hit was placed on her daughter and she was going to be murdered. Again, they felt like they had no choice to leave. The children um, in some ways felt joy because they were safe in the shelter. They were safer than they had been in months. Um, but the shelter was not a long-term solution. And in the eyes of these migrants in the shelter, 
um, they felt a sense of hopelessness, of helplessness, of despair, um, many of whom wait two years to have their asylum case be heard. And so they, what the president will have you, uh, what will tell you is illegally enter the country. They say, I keep being turned back at this point of entry, uh, at this port of entry where I try to legally declare asylum. So I'm going to go two miles down the road, which is not where Customs and Border Patrol uh, check my passport or my visa they're, where they're not there. I'm just going to cross there. And the minute I cross there, I'm not trying to sneak into the country. The minute I cross there, I'm going to give myself up, declare my intention to seek asylum to a CBP agent uh, because I can't wait in line for two years because I can't sit here with the 20,000 in Juarez, the over 50,000 along the U.S.-Mexico border who are just told to wait their turn or just now being told by President Trump that the doors are closed and you're not welcome in this country. Um, and, so the, and so the ones who go two miles down the road to uh, cross the border uh, beyond, you know, out, out of reach of a checkpoint, turn themselves into CBP, what happens to them? So it's complicated. They believe that they should, as was the case in the past, remain in um, the United States while their asylum case is being heard. And um, to cross the border at a non-port of entry illegally, or as immigration advocates will say, not there's nothing illegal about this, rather irregularly, is a misdemeanor. Um, that they're not tried for this. Um, they are released on bonds and with oftentimes family members or a sponsor organization until their case is heard in an immigration court. Um, what this administration is trying to do is punish them for their actions, uh, to try to dissuade people from doing so. And so in many cases, they're arrested and they go to criminal court first. We sat in a federal courthouse, a criminal court where they're forced to be on trial for illegally crossing the border. And that's even before they're able to make their case to an immigration judge where their case is heard whether or not they could stay in this country. Uh, one case, somebody was had to stay in jail in the Department of Corrections for 30 days because they crossed the border at a non-port of entry and turned themselves in right afterwards. Um, but they're told... They spend 30 days in jail as their punishment before they're turned over to ICE and put in ICE detention uh, and wait months, if not more than that, until they're seen in front of an immigration judge. Um, I never felt more privileged as an American uh, than I did when we were on that pedestrian bridge, saw somebody trying to seek asylum and turn away, and we just showed our passports and kept on going. Um, and it really was a roll of the dice. It's because generations before me, my family came through Ellis Island and came into this country and allowed me to be born in this country and given that privilege, given that passport, simply because I was born into this country. We saw the results of these bigoted policies, the MPP program, the metering that takes place at the border, uh, of us turning our back and saying, oh, that's Mexico's problem. That's not our problem. We're closed. We saw that when we were in Mexico. 
we so what, what are some of the what are some of the ramifications of that uh, in Mexico, right? So we, you saw it on the other side of the border. Um, what does that do for the for the migrants, asylum seekers who uh, are, you know, declare asylum and are metered and told to remain in Mexico? What what what's their life like in Mexico, and how do the you know the Mexican communities that are nearby or around them? Um, uh, how do they relate to um, to these you know growing populations of Central American migrants who um, are are remaining in Mexico waiting on their asylum claim to be processed in, in the U.S. You know, part of it is these tent cities that are being set up on the border and the border towns. Um, we are telling people that they are so less than. Um, that we do not recognize their humanity, that we're okay with them, you know, sleeping on the streets because we don't want to hear their case. It's gotten so bad that we met with a, a wonderful organization, Las Americas, which is an immigration legal advocacy organization on the border uh, that provides high quality pro bono legal support to migrants. Uh, and they said that it's gotten so bad that those in Mexico, because of MPP, because of this Remain in Mexico program, or as these legal advocates call it, this Fear in Mexico program, that they'd rather be in ICE custody right now. And we'll get to how bad that is. They'd yeah. rather be in ICE custody than be stuck in Mexico because it's not their home. Uh, they have no safety or security there. They're living on the streets. Like I said, the very few are able to get in shelters, but even in shelters, they're living in warehouses where uh, they're in bunk beds, twin-size bunk beds, 250 beds for 700, 750 people, uh, and they can't leave those shelters for months at a time until they're, they're able to go to an immigration judge uh, at the border to hear their asylum case. You know, I saw one of your uh, travel companions uh, talk about these tent cities and, and shelters uh, um, in Mexico, um, to re reflecting on it on social media. Uh, and they said uh, that, uh, that, that a, a more proper term for those uh, communities uh, are refugee camps. Do you, do you have the same sense? Um, I think... Refugee camps uh, work with other countries to have those refugees be resettled. The problem is uh, these people aren't recognized internationally as refugees in these other countries, especially our country, this country where Emma Lazarus's words of poetry are uh, declared you know, the Statue of Liberty sings these words as you come into this country, you know, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. We're saying we don't want to bring you into our country. You are not refugees. Do not seek refuge here. Um, refugee camps often get support by international organizations, by the UN, by the countries where those refugee camps are set up. Uh, the shelters get minimal support from the Mexican government. The these border ten cities are really uh, exactly as they are. They're they're cities of those who are homeless. They're, they're communities of those who are homeless 
who just are squatting in the middle of the street. Um, and many times they're relying on our, our own not-for-profit organizations to go to Mexico and help them, so much so that as of a couple months ago, Hyas actually set up their first office in Juarez because they can't provide support for people when they cross the border because we're not l even letting these people cross the border to declare asylum legally. We're not letting them legally cross the border at a port of entry. So they've set up shop in Mexico to help advocate for uh, these migrants on that side of the border and help them get across the border. In theory, the MPP program says that those who are vulnerable populations should not be sent back. That means those who don't speak Spanish, right? You can't be sent back to Mexico if you don't speak Spanish. If you're coming from a country like Guatemala that has these many uh, dialects that are specific to their regions, uh, if you're coming from a Central or South American country where Portuguese is the language you speak, uh, there are many who have trouble getting visas from other parts of the country to come to America. So they are traveling to Mexico. They're flying to Mexico. Uh, they're a refugee in the Middle East, in Europe, and they're flying to Mexico and trying to get it to America to declare asylum that way. They don't speak Mexico, Mexican. They don't, I mean, they don't speak Spanish. They're not supposed to be sent back to Mexico. Often they are. Uh, if you are part of the LGBTQ community, you're, we're considered vulnerable. You're not supposed to be sent back to live in these 10 cities. The Trump administration decided they're no longer vulnerable. Send them back. If you were a pregnant woman, you were considered vulnerable. You're no longer considered vulnerable by the Trump administration. They're being sent back. Uh, so time and time again, it's just they're adding height to the barrier, to the metaphorical wall that mm -hmm. they are building mm -hmm. to preventing people from legally declaring asylum and try to gain entry into our country, right? That's the argument they keep making is do it legally, wait in line. And these people are trying to do so and uh, we're making it impossible for them to do so. Right. And I, and I want to add just a couple of things. The first is uh, uh, John Oliver on last week tonight, um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and you can find it on YouTube did a really, really excellent piece on the legal immigration process uh, and, uh, you know, not even touching on uh, many of the uh, things that you're talking about, Jesse, um, but uh, but talking about you know, the, the argument of, you know, uh, get in line and there's a legal process and we're all for legal immigration and how um, extremely cumbersome, uh, complicated and limited the avenues are for, for legal immigration in, in the country. Um, and so that's that's really an important piece of this conversation uh, that gets obscured uh, in, in, in the conversation about what, what happens uh, along the border because the argument is, well, you know, there, there are legal channels and you should use those, uh, but there really aren't uh, many legal channels to, to actually enter the country. That's one thing I wanna make sure to, to bring up and encourage our, our listeners to, to check out. The, the second is, um, we we uh, talked about the comparison between these tent cities uh, that have sprung up as a result of the Remain in Mexico policy and, and talking about whether or not um, they're akin to refugee camps uh, and also the comparison, fair or not, of uh, asylum seekers to refugees and said, you know, to the extent that, that refugees have certain kinds of legal protections, uh, 
many of these people don't. Uh, and it's also worth noting that the Trump administration has uh, moved to uh, to, to uh, restrict the refugee program, the refugee resettlement program, uh, uh, almost to non-existence at this point. It was something around 100,000 refugees were resettled uh, at the toward the end of the Obama administration. Uh, and uh, uh, over the course of the past three years, the Trump administration has reduced that number significantly to uh, this year, uh, 18,000 refugees will be allowed in. So about a tenth um, of, uh, of, of, what, um, of what was allowed in the remaining years in the Obama administration. And all indications uh, suggest that, uh, that, that, you know, that the Trump administration will, will go even further uh, in, in the future. Uh, yeah, Mike, this, just to clarify yeah. that, um, mm -hmm. the number policy is that you have to give the number and announce the number for the fiscal year of how many refugees you're willing to allow into the country. And right. so that $18,000, that $8,000, those 18,000 refugees that Trump announced for 2020 is the ceiling, not right, the right. floor. Right. So they're saying that's Correct. the max will allow that's the max. Right, there's a exactly. good chance that they're that they are going there, to be less than that. Right. A lot less than that. Right. 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 Exactly. And in this in a moment when we have the largest refugee crisis in human history. Uh, and so it's uh, so but we're not even talking about those people when we talk about uh, uh, what's happening at the border uh, with with Mexico right now. So it's just worth uh, holding that out there. And then, and then finally, just one other thing I want to throw into the mix here um, and, you know, we can. Uh, talk about this as, as is relevant, um, is that I had the opportunity uh, last year to travel to Guatemala with uh, American Jewish World Service, another uh, very important Jewish organization uh, that works to advance human rights and, and eradicate poverty in, in the global south. I went to Guatemala with them and saw uh, uh, some of this crisis from, uh, from that side, uh, saw many of the conditions that you were talking about, Jesse, um, that uh, happen in places like Guatemala and Honduras that, uh, that, that drive uh, migration and drive people to, to flee and seek asylum uh, in the United States. Um, uh, incredible uh, crushing poverty, uh, rampant violence, uh, and, uh, and, and uh, the impunity of people who, who perpetrate violence, um, especially gangs and cartels, um, and, uh, and, and widespread corruption uh, that, uh, that uh, uh, permits the government to effectively persecute people with impunity um, and, uh, or, and or to turn a blind eye to, uh, to, to, the, to the persecution and, and uh, threaten uh, the lives that are threatened uh, among people there. So uh, it's, um, it, it's, it, it's important, I think, to kind of see what's, what's going on uh, in that side of the crisis and then in addition to that recognize uh the, the the american government's role in creating uh some of those conditions in the first place um over the past half century or so uh and our refusal today not only to allow people uh uh asylum in our country who are fleeing those conditions but also our refusal to do anything to help eradicate those conditions in the countries where many of these people are, are fleeing from. Yeah, I, I think we refuse to take responsibility that um, for our um, lack of support, um, foreign assistance, aid uh, that have caused upheaval in some of these countries, and then we lock our doors 
um, and say, sorry, you know, find somewhere else, um, which is especially disturbing because we are a country of immigrants. I think it's right. especially disturbing um, as a Jew because of our own immigration story, our own story uh, of, and I'm not just talking about uh, Torah saying, right, love the stranger for you were one strangers, love the sojourner for you were one sojourners. I mean, all of us have that story. We all, all of our families came from somewhere else and left, um, not as refugees in many cases, um, but, but if we're talking pre-Holocaust, we left because we were fearful for our own safety and we fled um, as immigrants for a better life for our children. Um, and that's why we're here. Uh, and it's hard for me to see the Jewish community uh, not realize that, to see how we turn our backs on our own history um, because we worry that somebody else who looks different than us, who speak a different language than us, who come from a different place than us, that their story, we, we, we try to say their story is not our story when it very much is. We try to yeah, say that um, their story is different. We try to say that their story is less important. Um, and we can quote infinite verses of Torah. We can pull out whatever sugya of Talmud we want to tell you why the immigration system in this country is immoral, but we shouldn't have to. We shouldn't have to convince our own people. We shouldn't have to convince the Jewish community why this system is immoral. And when we have to do that, it's not just the system that's broken. It's our own moral compass that's broken that needs to change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one other thing that I wanted to add uh, about all of that, you know, not even from a a Jewish perspective uh, is uh, is that you know uh, we, we we introduced this conversation, uh, reminding our listeners that were uh, the the public phase of the impeachment uh, proceedings uh, began today, and one of the defenses that the uh, president has has offered for his conduct uh, related to Ukraine um, is that he is uh, fixated on corruption and on ending corruption, uh, and what. I witnessed in uh, Guatemala uh, is uh, a place in which there is rampant corruption and an American government uh, that is wholly unconcerned with corruption in Guatemala, so much so uh, that, uh, that, that it, it is effectively offered its uh, support and encouragement as the Guatemalan president, Jimmy Morales, uh, ended the mandate of the United Nations organization um, that was charged with uh, uh, investigating uh, government corruption uh, and uh, and uh, and proceeding uh, initiating justice proceedings um, against uh, perpetrators of uh, human rights violations and um, and war crimes uh, during the Guatemalan uh, in internal armed conflict, the civil war there um, that that took place over much of uh, the. Uh, second half of the 20th century and, uh, and, and the Trump administration um, uh, essentially uh, applauded and encouraged the Morales administration's uh, termination of, of, uh, of CSIG. Um, so, you know, so it, it, it's important, I think, to, to hold um, the, the broad scope, as you're suggesting, Jesse, you know, not just of what's happening in, in our country right now, not just what's happening at the border, um, but also the, the, the wider perspective of 
um, our values of who we are as Americans um, and who we are as uh, as Jews who are called to be, um, and what are the values that we hold? You know, do we uh, do we believe uh, that uh, that government officials you know should not abuse their power? Uh, do we not? Do we believe uh, that uh, that that uh, uh, government uh, governments should be held to standards of integrity and honesty, uh, and that there you know shouldn't be corruption? Do we believe? Uh, in in you know human rights, do we believe uh, in human dignity? Do we do we believe in in the equality of people? Right? Do do we hold uh, um, uh, as truths the things that we sometimes claim to hold as values, uh, but uh, but the reality sometimes bears out a a very different um, a, a very different uh, set of uh, of evidence uh, against what we do or don't believe. And you saw this. Jesse, um, uh, very starkly when you visited um, the ICE detention center in uh, um, uh, near uh, the border in New Mexico, right? The Otero detention center? Correct. We went to the Otero detention center uh, in Otero County, New Mexico. It's about 45 minutes from the border uh, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the desert. You can't get it get there by public transportation. Um, they really gave us a hard time about going there. Uh, we claimed as a group of clergy, this is a humanitarian trip to see what was going on there. Um, what we have to understand about uh, this, about detention in general, is that when you seek asylum, it is supposed to be civil detention. And we often ask, what does that mean? And that's part of our problem. We have not properly defined what civil detention is. When somebody um, was he is here uh, and enter the country irregularly, they are an undocumented immigrant, and they're waiting for uh, their date, their appointment in immigration court. In the past, they had to check in, right? They were free to be with their family to be living community and they had to check in with ICE. Uh, but we are locking them up. And because we don't have a civil detention system, uh, this specific ICE facility, Otero, is um, run by uh, MTC, I believe it's called, uh, a private prison company um, whose slogan, ironically, was bionic. Believe it or not, I care. Um, and it sort of speaks wow. to the robot nature. And they had that word bionic all over the building. Uh, it, it was it was almost satire. Uh, it speaks to the robot nature of the facility and how they don't treat the detainees um, as human beings. They also run a facility not too far away, which is a Department of Corrections facility. And so they're treating these ICE detainees the same way they treat convicted felons the same way they're treating criminals when many cases they cross the border and turn themselves in. They're declaring asylum and they're waiting for their case to be, to be heard. Um, because we were a group of clergy, because we were on a humanitarian visit, they sent their public relations representative to meet with us. They sent the warden of the facility to meet with us. They gave us a dog and pony show. Um, they tried to convince us that they did not use solitary confinement, that some people preferred to not live in the dorms, as they called it, which were rooms with bunk beds, 50 people to a space, um, and they wanted to be by themselves, and they were put in these private rooms. 
but the biggest complaint we learned after the fact from po- pro bono lawyers from Las Amer- from Las Americas from Catholic charities the biggest complaint we heard of that facility was their use of solitary confinement that when these detainees these migrants who were just there seeking safe haven declaring asylum seeking asylum when they would speak out about the conditions they were thrown into solitary confinement uh, in one case a person started a hunger strike because the food they were serving there was rotten. He was given 29, 30 days in solitary confinement. The next time he spoke up and complains, he was on his way to solitary confinement. Uh, he took his ID tag, the corner of the ID that was on his um, his detainee uh, jumpsuit that he had to wear every day, and he tried to slice his wrists. He tried to commit suicide because he said that that was that that no longer living was the only option. That would have been better off than living in this condition that he was living in. And and just this, and just so our just so our listeners uh, are, are reminded of this, uh, international uh, law defines a certain period in solitary confinement um, as uh, as as torture. Right? As how, torture. how long is that? Um, it, it defines solitary confinement in general as, as torture. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, uh, when you're there for an extended period of time, right. um, we walk down this narrow yeah, I thought it, I thought it was, I thought it was 14 days or 15 days, but, uh, but, but certainly 30 days is, uh, is imagine it. Yeah. We, we walk down this narrow hallway and as we walk down, uh, a, a, um, officer was closing the shades there's these thin slivers of window on each door for a tiny bit of light to get through. And they were closing the shades to make sure we couldn't see the detainees inside these solitary confinement cells. And in one cell, we heard somebody banging on the door, banging because they heard us. They didn't want to be forgotten. They wanted us to know that they were there. They wanted us to know that they were human. And uh, they were chastised. Uh, they were yelled at by the officers told to stop. Um, but we heard them, we saw them, and it doesn't matter what the PR representatives with the propaganda machine tries to tell us. Um, we know what we saw, um, and what we saw is antithetical to everything that we believe this country is supposed to be about. It's antithetical to everything we believe as Jews, uh, our embrace of the stranger and sojourner is supposed to be about, and it's uh, antithetical to everything that we believe uh, when we think about how we should treat each other if we believe each human being is made in God's image. It was deeply disturbing. Um, you know, I said afterwards, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's around to hear it, doesn't make a noise. If an ice facility is in the middle of the desert, 45 minutes from the border, can't access it by public transportation. You can't. You're not allowed to bring in cameras or recording devices or any electronics. If it's in the middle of nowhere, who hears the cries of the detainees? Who hears the cries for justice? Who sees the immorality that goes on there? And that's one of the reasons that we went um, to bear witness and to give testimony, to share of how unjust and how broken this system is. Um, For me, um, 
you know, I think about it as this is a pop culture podcast. Uh, I was watching, uh, coincidentally, before I went on this trip, there's a Netflix documentary, Living Undocumented. And it focuses on different stories of different people who came to this country for the same reason, right? They were seeking safe haven. Many came from Honduras. Uh, uh, one case, a family came from Israel. Uh, one case, uh, uh, an individual, his family came from Laos. And they came seeking a better life, a more safe life for their family. Uh, and that show just speaks to how broken this system is. Uh, and so we asked, why do you have a documentary like this? I think it's the same reason. It's to bear witness because when we don't put names and faces to these stories, when we don't hear these stories, when we don't personalize it, then we, it's easy to talk about numbers and it's easy to talk about statistics. But when you have a name and a face to go along with this broken immigration system, we say we can't turn our backs on them. We say it's not just about loving the strangers, it's about loving this person whose story we have heard. It's about loving this human being, and it's about embracing them and protecting them. Yeah. So uh, I want to I want everybody to know that uh, that Jesse wrote a uh, a powerful uh, op ed about uh, his experience at Otero for Haaretz, which is um, an uh, an Israeli newspaper uh, and uh, has an online. Uh, an English online edition. Uh, and uh, so you should check it out. Uh, it, the title is At an Ice Detention Center, We Rabbis Saw the Horrors the American State Tries to Hide. Uh, and it's a really, really powerful piece going into even more detail than, than Jesse shared uh, just now. Uh, and uh, um, it's, it's to me, Jesse, it was impossible to read it uh, and not be brokenhearted um, and not be uh, stirred to conscience. Um, and what it it reminded me of two things, really. The first is um, that, uh, uh, as, as you no doubt know, and many of our listeners probably know, that there was a, uh, uh, when, when people outside of Europe uh, first started to kind of learn the, uh, uh, the, the atrocities of, uh, of the Holocaust as, as World War II was unfolding, um, uh, uh, Germans, the Germans let uh, media in to uh, one of its uh, concentration camps, Theresienstadt, uh, and they uh, and they effect effectively put on kind of a, a propaganda show uh, to show how how uh, wonderful the conditions were there and how you know uh, uh, they were they were caring for inmates and that children were playing uh, and uh, you know in, in order to deflect. Uh, from uh, from the from the actual crimes and horrors that the state was uh, um, was was perpetrating, and so hearing your descriptions of of uh, of the dog and pony show that uh, that that ICE was putting on at at, at Otero um, at, for clergy who were visiting there re reminded me of that um, really uh, tragic chapter of, of history. Uh, it's not the first time that uh, that a Holocaust comparison has been uh, brought about uh, uh, to, uh, to, to to describe what's going on at the border. I wonder if, uh, if in a moment you'll take a second to reflect on that debate and that conversation that kind of emerged or erupted into the into popular culture uh, back this summer. But the other thing that struck me, and then I'll turn it back over to you, Jesse, is um, is that uh, in the book of Exodus, 
um, uh, you know, the, the, the people, uh, Israel, who the children of Israel who are, uh, uh, who had been, who had had harsh labor and taskmasters imposed on them uh, by Pharaoh, um, eventually cry out. But it's not the Egyptians that hear their cry. Who knows if the Egyptians even knew what was going on? The average Egyptian even knew what was going on. Um, but ultimately, their cry reaches God, right? God hears their cry, uh, and then God is moved to respond. And so, when when you ask that question, you know, when if uh, if if a if a if a uh, asylum seeker who's detained and put into uh, civil detention, uh, you know, forty five minutes in the border, surrounded by mountains, if he cries out, who can hear them? Um, I, I think our tradition would say God hears them. And then we, uh, as people who are aware of what's going on through uh, courageous um, uh, people like, like you, Jesse, and, and the colleagues that you went with, um, that, that, uh, that we have a responsibility to, um, to, to act on, on God's behalf, to be voices for people who are not being heard and to act uh, to uh, alleviate their their conditions. So I wonder if you would um, uh, reflect on your thinking now, having experienced and seen what's going on at the border uh, on uh, on the Holocaust analogy question, uh, and then and then also um, uh, about you know uh, whether or not you think that this uh, situation uh, has connections to the central narrative of the exodus for for the jewish people sure i'm going to take the the second question first because i think that's an easier one i think absolutely um it has connections to the exodus story i think absolutely it was god who heard the cries of the israelites but god sent moses and aaron as as messengers um right. uh, i am not comparing any of us to to Moshe Rabbeinu, um, but I do think that that is the essence of what Torah is supposed to be. Torah is supposed to be a guidebook to help us be God's partners uh, and, and to create this world, to continue to create this world that God set out to create that we have in many ways broken. Um, and we are supposed to be God's messengers. We are supposed to be God's partners. We are supposed to be God's spokespeople. Um, and I think that's what we do when we try to uh, speak out and see injustice and call out injustice and live Torah. Torah becomes meaningless to us um, if we don't think it's meant to guide us in the worlds that we live in. If it's just meant to be studied, if it's just meant to be chanted, um, and it's not meant to guide the society that we're building, then Torah... Uh, is great as a historical document, but has very little meaning in our lives if it's not meant to guide us in our lives. Um, the first question you asked um, <coughs> about the Holocaust comparisons is a more complicated one. Um, do I believe that we are marching people to gas chambers like the Nazis did? No. Do I believe that we are rounding people up in state-sponsored prisons, seeing them as less than human, do I believe we are demonizing people of a certain ethnicity, of a certain skin tone, uh, who speak a certain language and calling them animals and calling them drug dealers and calling them rapists and saying that they are not worth being part of the fabric of America, that they are different than us and we should be scared of them? I think that's 
what this president has done since summer 2015 when he went down that golden escalator and started a war with Mexicans and migrants at the Mexican border. I think absolutely. I think what the Nazis did culminated in the mass murder of millions of Jews, but it began with targeting the Jewish people as a scapegoat. It began with targeting uh, Jewish uh, institutions and houses of study and synagogues and uh, places of business with violence and persecution. Um, you know, we just observed Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, in which uh, synagogues were burned to the ground and storefronts uh, where Jewish store owners uh, they had their storefronts shattered. This intentional uh, bigotry towards the Jewish people long before the murder of six million Jews. Um, the last place we visited, Michael, uh, on our trip was the Walmart in El Paso. Mm -hmm. The Walmart in El Paso is the site of just one of the many uh, mass shootings that took place in our country this past year at that Walmart on August 3rd of this past year, 22 people were murdered. 26 people were severely injured uh, when a mass shooter started in the parking lot and started shooting and then went into the store. This Walmart was targeted by a resident from a Texas town that was about eight hours away and drove to El Paso because El Paso is 80% Hispanic went to this Walmart because he knew that many residents would be there doing school shopping. And early that morning, just started indiscriminately shooting. In fact, it wasn't even indiscriminately when he, there were stories that when he walked over to the frozen food section and he saw a number of women on their knees praying and praying in Spanish, he started shooting them. He saw a group of white shoppers and stopped turned his gun away from them and shot this group of Spanish women who were praying instead. Um, and it just goes to show you that bigoted policies and bigoted treatment of people by the government lead to mass violence by citizens um, that you can connect the dots and draw the line right from that uh, summer 2015 speech about Mexicans being rapists and drug dealers um, to these policies that the president and um, white supremacists like Stephen Miller are, are putting into our society to the way ICE treats these civil detainees as less than human to those who support those policies taking that bigotry into their own hands and shooting dozens of people who are of Hispanic descent. Um, and to me, that very much aligns with what Germany was and what the Nazi narrative was during Hitler's rise to power. Not necessarily, we don't have to connect it to um, death camps um, for us to say that these are concentration camps. We don't have to connect it to um, the final solution of Hitler to make connections to Nazi Germany, right? And and uh, you know, it's I think you know to to uh, to your to your very point, uh, the, uh, the the death camps, uh, which were an implementation of of the final solution, um, was uh, was was at a 
a fairly late stage in uh, in in the reign of terror of the Nazis, um, and there were uh, any number of uh, of steps uh, along the path um, at, at which uh, at which um, y- you know uh, people of conscience um, could have intervened uh, and uh, and didn't. Uh, and, uh, and, and it, it, uh, and things, uh, ended up where, where they ended up. And so, um, you know, God forbid anything like that should ever happen again. Uh, there's, you know, there's, there's, um, good reason to think that, uh, that what, you know, uh, our, our relationship to, uh, the, the human beings, uh, who are, uh, uh, trying to, uh, find refuge and asylum in this country now, um, uh, won't end up that way. Uh, but there are certainly uh, steps along the path uh, that uh, bear resemblance to uh, where we are, and, and it's and it's worth sounding alarm uh, and uh, and and advocating for um, a, a distinct change of course, um, uh, even at these stages, because um, there are uh, crimes uh, and uh, and and immoral actions and uh, and harm uh, that. Uh, that, that that's befalling people be, because of it. Uh, we were just uh, here in Richmond. We we just um, had a, an opportunity to learn from Dr. Deborah Lipstadt, who is a professor at Emory, uh, became famous uh, in a, a libel case uh, against um, a, a Holocaust denier in England, uh, who uh, who sued her for defamation, uh, and she won the case. Uh, but she just wrote a book called Anti-Semitism Here and Now. Um, which uh, which I recommend everybody read because she's a, a world class scholar on, on the subject uh, and it's a, a really prescient topic. And when she spoke with us, you know, she was talking about anti semitism, of course, but it, it, it's relevant here. She said that you know people think about the Holocaust and see the final solution, uh, but we often forget that uh, uh, virtually everything that ended up happening uh, during that that period of history. Uh, had its origin in in words, uh, in in how we speak, and it was right before Yom Kippur. Uh, and she said, you know, we're about to enter into a holiday where we confess our sins, and and the vast majority of the sins that we confess are crimes of speech, uh, because our tradition uh, is uh, is very mindful uh, of uh, of how worlds can be built and worlds can be destroyed uh, through the act of speech, both. Uh, in the act of speech itself and what speech can lead to. So I think that that, to your point, Jesse, about the connection between, you know, what uh, what uh, now President Trump said when he was uh, uh, entering the race as a candidate after coming down that golden escalator to where we are today, uh, it's important to connect those dots and see the connection uh, and, uh, and, and, and between that and uh, not only what's uh, happening um, uh, at the border in, in the detention centers, uh, but also... Uh, in in places like that, Walmart and El, El Paso, um, I'm really really powerful uh, experience that you had. I'm really grateful for uh, your your witness and for for sharing that with us. Thank you, Mike. You know, one last thing before we wrap up. You know, somebody asked me, well, what should we do then? What should we do with all of these immigrants who are trying to come to uh, America? And um, I mean, I have my own personal ideas, but I don't believe it's Right, necessarily our job as rabbis to come up with policy solutions. It's our job as rabbis to call out immorality. Right, it's to, when we see something as unjust, uh, it, it is to be that clarion call to our moral conscience, and um, that's what I think 
we were doing on this trip that we can certainly disagree with policy, uh, but I believe we can all agree when policy is unethical and immoral and the way we're treating human beings as less than human beings, uh, you can't see it as anything else but immoral. Yeah, I, I just want to echo that. I mean, I think that, that, that our job is not only to call out immorality, but to offer a, uh, a different moral vision and a, a different narrative uh, of this moment and of, and of history that can translate into policy in, in, in any possible number of different ways. But we're not policy experts. We're not, uh, we're not politicians. Uh, we're, uh, uh, we're not um, uh, law enforcement officials or diplomats, right? Uh, so my teacher, Rabbi Arya Cohen, uh, uh, relayed a story of a group of clergy that went to got a meeting with Robert McNamara at the height of the Vietnam War, uh, and uh, and they were arguing for an end to the war. And McNamara says, uh, who was the Secretary of uh, of, of Defense at the time, uh, he says to them, "Okay, well, let's say that I listen to you and I end the war tomorrow, and I pull out American troops tomorrow. How exactly would I do that?" And one of the clergy says to us, um, "We're here to tell you that." Uh, righteousness should come down like waters and justice like an unfailing stream and you're asking us about the plumbing the plumbing is your job right so uh amen so that, i think amen to that so, right so i think that that's really that's really important right we uh we can call out something as immoral and 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 argue that there should be a movement of of, of moral conscience uh that will hopefully uh lead to a conversation about how to uh, construct a different policy, but we're not pol we're not the policy experts, right? Absolutely. Uh, well, uh, and and I really appreciate that, Jessica, because I was going to ask you, uh, you know, what uh, what you recommend that that people do in this in this moment. So, do you have any practical advice for for how people can uh, engage at this moment? What what people can do? How people can speak out uh, uh, and make their voice heard? Um. First, it's important to support organizations. Um, I highly recommend, um, especially as we enter this holiday season, these December holidays where there's a season of giving, um, to support highest, to support the work of true. I, I like I like how you did that, by the way, and and I and I support your war on Christmas. <laughs> um, but to, to support these organizations, um, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting. Get stay out of my mentions. <laughs> Yeah, but but, Christmas. <laughs> but um, uh, organizations that are on the ground, Las Americas, the Annunciation House, which can house anywhere between 500 to 1,000 um, undocumented migrants uh, on any given night. Um, but also to see what you can do locally. Uh, there are organizations in every state that are looking to do advocacy work with detainees locally. Here in New Jersey, we have a great organization uh, which I spoke about when we did our episode on Orange is the New Black, uh, First Friends of New Jersey and New York, uh, where they train volunteers to visit ICE detainees at the local ICE detention facilities. Uh, here in New Jersey right now, we have the Let's Drive NJ campaign going on, which uh, is trying to uh, sign a bill into law in the state that would allow residents, uh, regardless of immigration status, to... Uh, get a driver's license to take the tests, the driver's tests, um, because an overwhelming majority of those who are in ICE custody uh, end up 
getting put in ICE custody because of a simple traffic violation. They get pulled over because mm-hmm. they run a red light, because they make an illegal U-turn, um, stuff that, uh, you know, I, I'll do this all hate right here, stuff that I do all the time, uh, stuff that we all do. Maybe, <laughs> right? Maybe we're speeding on the parkway um, or, or on the highway, but when we get pulled over, we show our driver's license and we get a speeding ticket. Um, we don't get put into ICE custody because uh, we can't get a driver's license because of our documentation or lack thereof. Yeah, I just want to uh, uh, echo from, from my end uh, here in Virginia, we, we have a similar campaign going on, uh, uh, on the board of the Virginia Interfaith Center for Public Policy. Uh, and one of its uh, initiatives this year, uh, this coming legislative session, uh, is to uh, is to advocate for uh, 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 driver's license privileges uh, for uh, for undocumented people, regardless of immigration status, um, for all the reasons that you that you said, Jesse. Um, and so, uh, for those of you who are in Virginia uh, who uh, want to join me in, in, in support of that initiative, um, I, I invite you to reach out uh, or look up the Virginia Interfaith Center for Public Policy. And even if you're out of uh, out of the Commonwealth. Uh, it's a, a worthy cause to support, and, and also one of the programs of the Virginia Interface Center for Public Policy uh, is the Central Virginia Sanctuary Network, uh, which provides support of all different kinds uh, for people of uh, uh, varying document uh, stat- immigration statuses, uh, and uh, and and uh, in particular people who are uh, uh, fighting uh, deportation uh, orders uh, in uh, immigration court. Uh, uh, some even. Uh, declaring public sanctuary in in houses of worship, um, so uh, it's a it's a worthy cause. Uh, both the Interfaith Center for Public Policy and the Central Virginia Sanctuary Network, and I hope that uh, uh, you might avail yourself of of, of checking it out and, and giving your support. And there are probably wherever you're listening, there are probably initiatives like those uh, going on. So um, so invite you to uh, look into it or reach out to us, and we could probably put you in contact with the right people. Amen, and may we. Uh seek to do the holy work of loving the stranger, of protecting the stranger, uh, of uh, welcoming the stranger, um, not just because we were once strangers ourselves, uh, but because uh, why wouldn't we? Because why wouldn't we see another human being as divine? Um, May we do the hard, difficult work of repairing this broken system and repairing the broken souls of this country to... uh, build a world that is the just world that I think God commands us to build. Amen. May we see it speedily in our days. Well, that's it for Pop Torah uh, this week. Uh, We hope that you'll uh, tune in uh, next time. Uh, And for now, I am Rabbi Michael Nah. I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. Take care.